The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, May 9th, 2022. Not that long ago, the White Sox were 7-11 after losing their home series against the Kansas City Royals. They were 3-9 against the American League Central Division. It was a terrible stretch with what is arguably their toughest stretch of the season now spanning 38 games. I thought that if the offense wasn't going to turn it around and the defense didn't stop making errors, the White Sox were to go 16 and 22 during that 38 game stretch and be 23 and 33 on June 10th. Nine games into the gauntlet, the White Sox are seven and two and they have now won six straight games And they swept not only at Wrigley Field, but now also at Fenway. The White Sox are above 500 at 14 and 13, still three games back of the Minnesota Twins for first place in the American League Central. But they come home to a seven game homestand, and the weather in Chicago is going to be the mid 70s to mid 80s all week. Will this hot streak continue? Is this type of winning baseball a sustainable model? We'll discuss that in this podcast episode, plus compare the Apple TV Friday Night Baseball broadcast to the Peacock Sunday Night Baseball broadcast. We welcome back Yoan Makata and Joe Kelly as they make their 2022 season debuts on Monday, preview the upcoming Guardian series, and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. A lot to discuss. So let's first start talking about what transpired in Boston, and joining me as the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and hello, Jim. The White Sox sweep at Boston. How did that happen? Well, I think the simplest answer is the Red Sox are kind of terrible, but I think (laughs) it's probably fair to say that the White Sox should be beating terrible teams, and they did. So I I think it's, you know, not such a, you know, it's no slight on the White Sox to say the Red Sox are bad, but I was surprised by just how lifeless they were and how lifeless those crowds were. I don't know if they're, you know, as we heard during the Apple TV broadcast, they're distracted by the Celtics and the Bruins. And so they weren't really putting their attention into a below 500 Red Sox team, but yeah, they were just, there's not a lot going on there. There isn't. And you know, the saying it gets late early for some teams uh, like the Cincinnati Reds already looking ahead to the 2023 major league (laughs) baseball draft, even though they're not guaranteed Uh, to have the number one pick with the new draft lottery next year. But the Red Sox are 10 and 19. They're a game and a half behind Baltimore in the standing. So the Red Sox are in last place. They're already 10 games back of the New York Yankees. That is a huge gap. And somebody had to finish fourth out of these teams, the Boston Red Sox, New York Yankees, Toronto Blue Jays, Tampa Bay Rays, Even with the expanded postseason, it was unlikely all four of these teams would make the postseason. Somebody had to finish fourth in this division and most likely be out of the postseason in the American League. 
And right now, I think the easy answer is that team's going to be Boston, Jim. And mm-hmm. it is a bit shocking. Yeah, I think you're going into the season, I was maybe the most bearish on Boston just because of Chris Sale's injury status. And I thought they needed like most of a season from him, even if it wasn't peak sale for most of the season, I think they just needed that kind of presence in the rotation to take some of the pressure off like the Nick Pavetta's from having to repeat and so forth, even though Pavetta actually pitched pretty well against the White Sox or the White Sox didn't hit well against him one way or the other. Uh, Nick Pavetta threw some shutout ball. I think uh, once sales, you know, return was kind of murky and now it's murkier still because of some kind of health issue that's unrelated to the injury or COVID that, uh, yeah, it's, it seems like that help is not immediately arriving and Trevor story has not been that help. In fact, he's getting booed. You know, he's having a rough time. Like I think he's in the ultimate slump where he's not hitting well, he's not seeing the ball well and, and every 50, 50 ball and call is not going his way and the crowd is letting him hear it. It's, uh, yeah, they're not getting immediate returns on the help they thought would be arriving right now. And they look pretty pained scoring runs otherwise. Now for the Chicago White Sox, for the first time in franchise history, they have won six games in a row without scoring more than four runs in any of the games. During this stretch, they have outscored their opponents 20 to 9. The team pitching has a staff ERA of 1.47. And for the season now, the White Sox offense is only averaging 3.3 runs per game. So, Jim, with this winning streak and how they climbed out of the hole they dug themselves, is this model of White Sox baseball during the six-game winning streak of low-scoring games, thanks to excellent pitching and a sputtering offense, a sustainable model? I don't, uh, let me put it this way. I think it could be if the temperatures were guaranteed to stay below 55 degrees for the entire season. Like if, say, there was a volcano in Iceland that's just covered the Western Hemisphere with ash for the entire summer. And so it's just an eternal, uh, yeah, eternal uh, November. Then maybe, just because I think, you know, some of the offense's struggles are related to just the conditions in the ball and the combination. Like, even you know, during the series in Boston, like, you know, Larry Garcia hit one 106, 107 miles per hour with a good angle to right field. It was caught, like, short of the warning track in, in the right field corner. J.D. Martinez, I thought, took Jose Ruiz deep, and that went off the top, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe 15 feet of the monster. So, you know, both sides lost homers still. Both sides are losing homers still when they were kind of built around home runs. So when you look at the way, you know, the White Sox are struggling to hit, but the offenses they're playing are not lighting up, then perhaps like under the current conditions where the ball is just not traveling, maybe, you know, it would be boring, painful baseball to watch. And you think that's going to fall apart. But, you know, the way I look at it is they've won, you know, six games in a row scoring four runs or fewer you know, they could easily be 0-6 or 1-5. So I think, you know, mm-hmm. just getting over 500 while not playing their best ball is pretty good. And and, and those wins count no matter what. And, uh, you know, I, I think there is another reality where this White Sox offense does not turn around. And all of a sudden, you know, they're even further below 500. And you're really thinking like, oh, you're watching those playoff odds turning against the White Sox and towards the Twins. But they did that didn't happen. So I think... They're in pretty good shape. I think we'll learn a lot more about what the White Sox can do this coming week when the temperatures are normal, when I'm assuming the wind isn't going to be knocking down everything, whatever wind is going to, yeah. The wind eventually start, has to help start helping balls out to the degree that it can. I, I think we'll find out something about the baseballs and how much of uh, the down offenses are baseball related. But I, I think there have been uniquely unusual conditions for the White Sox, both at home and on the road, all their northerly travel, all the, like, you know, they haven't played any warm weather locations. They haven't gotten any respite from the cold going on Mm -hmm. the road. So I think it's unique uh, compared to pretty much most seasons, how bad the weather has been. And so, you know, I'm inclined to say like, just take the victories as they come and uh, wait for the weather warm up. But this week we'll pretty much lay waste to that excuse. If they go with another week without scoring more than four runs, then I think you can start getting a little bit itchy. Yeah. Well, the White Sox during the six game winning streak, they had two come from behind victories. The second game against the Cubs, they were down by two runs and they came back, they chipped away and they won that game four to three. They stole 
the Saturday game from Boston. The Red Sox only scored one run, but it was one to nothing going to the ninth inning, and that White Sox offense was incredibly frustrating. They were getting multiple runners on base late, but they just could not get that extra extra hit to take the lead. And they finally break through in the ninth inning, thanks to the bottom of the order, when Jake Berger takes the first walk of the game for the White Sox in the ninth inning. And Adam Engel ropes the double down left field. And then finally, the White Sox offense hits in the 10th inning. Uh, and they break through for two more runs to steal that victory away, 3-1. to one. Uh, So those are the two wins that I circled that easily could have been losses for the White Sox, uh, especially that Saturday game. But, you know, thanks to Luis Roberts' two-run homer on Friday against Nathan Eovaldi, that was great. I thought the White Sox offense did a good job racking up his pitch count. The Red Sox bullpen is a bit of a mess, as we did see in that Saturday game. And they took an early lead, 3-0, which surprised me with the Sunday lineup that they put out there, giving multiple guys days off. It might be the worst constructed lineup when you look at talent-wise for the 2022 season. But hey, they scored three runs early in the game, and they held on uh, to win that game 3-2. I'm pretty pumped about this winning streak, and... I am also pretty shocked at how it's going down. Again, I was really dour for this 38-game uh, gauntlet for the White Sox. I thought they were going to go 16-22, and hopefully they don't do that after starting off so well with this gauntlet. I think this model, and I agree with you, Jim, works for a week. But now we got news that Aaron Bummer is going on the injured list. That mm-hmm. makes a spot available for Joe Kelly. Thankfully, Joe Kelly is a fresh bullpen arm because Liam Hendricks has had a lot of work last week. He was challenging Addison Reed's uh, club record of, what, six consecutive saves? Six saves in six days, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And he could have on Sunday. He would have had that opportunity if Tony La Russa let him. Kendall Graveman, he's already appeared in 13 games this season. That's two short of the league lead. I I, I guess he's a bit tired. That's why we didn't see him on Sunday. And I, I don't think it's realistic that you could count on this pitching staff to have a team ERA below 1.5 for a couple of weeks or even for a whole month. I just find that to be an unrealistic expectation. It's not like if the White Sox pitching gave up three runs, Jim, Mm -hmm. that's not a lot of runs. But if they want to continue this winning streak or have a monster month in May, I'm with you. At some point, this offense needs to start consistently scoring four or more runs. The 2022 White Sox, Jim, are on pace to score just 535 runs this season. I went on baseball reference to check the last time a White Sox team didn't score that many runs in a 162-game season. You want to guess? Uh, 1970? You were close. 1967. Okay, I figure it was in that era. Yeah, and and that White Sox team, they went 89-73 because they only allowed 491 runs. That would be something if the White Sox duplicated that method in 2022, but I am doubtful that the pitching staff will not allow 500 runs this season. They've already allowed over 100 runs through the first 27 games of the season. I think the pitching staff can maintain this level of performance because of the talent on hand, especially with the starting pitching that we've seen. But I really do think this upcoming week, Jim, the White Sox need to win a game 7-1. to That takes it really easy on the bullpen because this bullpen's not going to get another day off until May 23rd. Mm-hmm. And this is a treacherous stretch here that they could be playing a lot closer games. And my concern this week is just because of how much they've been used already this season, we may see some blown lades because they're running on fumes. Yeah, well, yeah, we almost saw like a blown lead in the ninth inning with Jose Ruiz taking over the ninth because, you know, as you mentioned, Graveman was held out. Uh, Bummer seems to be hurt with a knee issue of some kind, and Liam Hendricks is out. So it was Jose Ruiz, and we've talked about Jose Ruiz against the Peter Principle uh, last year. Did well in low leverage situations, got lopsided games over with, whether they were winning or losing. But anytime the game was mildly tense, he seemed to just not have an answer. And this year, they've been slowly turning up the heat on him. And and this was the biggest test yet. And he didn't quite get a chance to finish it. It was a weird, you know, Larusa managed that Sunday game strangely, I think. Like it was the way I put it in the recap was multiple heat checks. Like 
Terrible lineup? Okay, we grabbed a lead. Dallas Keuchel, three batters too long? We held that lead. And now here we go with Ruiz and Bennett Souza over uh, Kendall Graveman um, in an attempt to get rest, and it worked. Uh, like the White Sox survived uh, a few decisions that I think were, uh, I, I guess, suboptimal to say the least. But it, it's good to see like Ruiz step up in a way, but you know that's something that could be exposed. Like Matt Foster, I don't think anybody's expected what he's delivered. And so if he were to stumble, that would be acceptable you know that would be just you have to bank on that happening at some point just because he's Matt Foster he's not Liam Hendricks there's a reason why Foster was on the fringe of the roster uh that that rhymed so it's (laughs) uh you know it's a little bit of a lopsided bullpen right now but I think as you mentioned Joe Kelly being a fresh arm will help I think also Joe Kelly specific to him is that he's a righty who doesn't really struggle against lefties. He seems to get them out equally with his, uh, with his sinker and, and, and uh, change up. You know, he seems to neutralize hitters pretty well, uh, curveball too. So just like he's got some weapons against the lefties and that should be, I'm guessing he'll get the Aaron Bummer innings instead of Bennett Souza, which I think is uh, a good idea and we'll see how it goes from there. The White Sox will preview this upcoming series later in the show with Cleveland. I w- if they sweep them and they only score 10 runs, I'm going to be really happy when we have Sox Machine Live, Jim, because, hey, the White Sox have a nine-game winning streak. But 10 runs in three games is really not enough, especially on the talent on hand for the White Sox. And I, it may sound like we're nitpicking here for a six-game winning streak. I, I just want the good vibes to continue. And mm-hmm. if you ask me, okay, Josh, is this legit? Is this model sustainable? My answer is it's not. We, we've seen White Sox teams in the past play these types of games, especially and have really good pitching on hand. Like it reminds me of the 2015 White Sox. And then the offense just doesn't muster enough run support. And the White Sox, it flips on them. They start losing these games three to two, four to three, because the offense is just not effective enough. And hopefully this week we see a turnaround. I want the White Sox to sweep Cleveland, but it'd be nice if they scored 15 runs in three games uh, and not the 10 runs. That's the only reason why I would say this type of winning is not sustainable. It's just, I can't imagine the White Sox offense still struggling this much throughout the 2022 season. I guess, Jim, at some point they have to break out. Yeah, I I think if they won, if they swept Cleveland uh, three in a row with uh, 10 uh, runs total, I think I would be happy. One, uh, because they neutralized Jose Ramirez to a meaningful degree, which I think is helpful. Also, you know, Cleveland's playing pretty well. I mean, it's weird after seeing like the AL Central be beaten up, you know, for being weak and just, you know, oh, the Twins are on top and the White Sox are failing. That division must be terrible. Uh, now here come the Twins, uh, White Sox and Guardians all playing well. All are seven and three in their last 10 games, uh, 500 or better. Like the AL West is now the division that looks the weakest with the Mariners really struggling. So it's, uh, you know, it's uh, not even start for everybody, but I think, you know, just right now with the way the White Sox are playing and with Guardians coming up with you know, three right-handed pitchers who have given the White Sox fits here and there that I would take wins no matter how they come. I think I'm not going to get picky till, uh, you know, maybe the weekend yet yeah, the, the, the full, uh, seven games here just to understand like, you know, you know, when it's not Cal Quantrill who always shuts down the White Sox and Zach Plesak who always gives them a hard time, you know, a variety of opponents, I think would be nice to see the White Sox break out. But with the guardians, given how they played in Cleveland, I just take three wins no matter how they come. So for Dallas Kaiku, we've been talking about him often. I thought for sure the Red Sox were going to snap out of their offensive funk against Keiko. Instead, Keiko went six innings. He only allowed two earned runs, which was in that sixth inning. He allowed eight hits. He struck out five, only walked one. Is this a good enough performance, Jim, from Keiko to keep him going every fifth day? I think so, or at least it's enough for another start. Um, you know, given his problems throwing strikes and and consecutive outings, I would like to see consecutive outings two or three in a row where he does throw, uh, you know, more than sixty percent or sixty percent or more of his pitches for strikes and only walks one or two over five innings. Like the command slash control problems that he showed his last times out that were that was untenable, and that was it was going to catch up to him one way or another just based on 
only being able to throw four innings, which Jimmy Lambert can do, or getting shelled because he's in the strike zone. You know, he was pitching as though he was afraid of that. So having him come out and throw strikes, and and you know, especially after the first inning, you know, getting that walk out of the way, and really the the two runs were more on. I would say Tony LaRusso, or at least the second run was like he got in trouble, but like he was left in three batters too long. And he was lucky to get out with the lead just based on the way that uh, LaRusso uh, looked a gift horse in the mouth a little bit. So I, I think Keuchel pitched well. I think he still has to be managed more carefully than LaRusso did, uh, but it was good enough. And, and given that it's Johnny Cueto and really nobody in Charlotte, I think they do have to keep all options engage somehow and, and, and available and on hand just because if one starter goes down, it's back to Keuchel because Jimmy Lambert's on the IL. Wes Benjamin, who is the feel-good story early, has had a couple couple rough outings in a row. There really isn't anybody besides Cueto who looks like he can maybe help in the immediate future. But the White Sox have a decision on Cueto by May, May 15th. 15th. Yes. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's coming quickly, Jim. That's next week. Yeah. But I think, you know, if Vince Velasquez has to go down or, you know, like not down, but just like to the bullpen, get some length there, that's fine. Like, I think they can juggle guys around and keep guys stretched out. I think there will be, you know, if you did like a tandem type thing with Keuchel and Velasquez where you didn't ask too much from Keuchel and he didn't ask too much from Velasquez, try to get through seven innings. I wouldn't mind seeing that lefty righty combo. You flip the lineup around, have two different looks. That could be useful. We saw that, you know, briefly with uh, when Gio Gonzalez was in the rotation with Reynaldo Lopez and actually worked out pretty well. But Rick Renteria, because he was so averse to any kind of alternate strategy uh, for starters, did not entertain it. But if you have Keuchel going four innings uh, and then Velasquez also available and kept stretched out, I think that would be the way to go. I think to, to relieve the bullpen a little bit and to keep all starters stretched out enough to where if somebody goes down, somebody can step in. But why should Velasquez be punished? He's the one that's been, at least back-to-back starts, very effective. Where Keuchel, it, it is a surprise on how well he performed against Boston on Sunday. But his previous two outings, I mean, 10 walks and two starts is just not good. Well, this isn't a world where like you know, Keuchel pitches as well as he did last time out again. Um, you know, if he struggles again, and if you're seeing like the the net number of starts, you know, favor Velasquez, then fine. But I just think, you know, I don't think Velasquez, given his history, his track record, what he signed for, can feel like he's been punished. Um, and I also like the idea of him coming in. Like, I, I think if you went for Velasquez for four or five innings and then brought in Keuchel, you'd be like, oh, crap, this is going to fall apart. Yeah. Because Keuchel doesn't have any experience on the bullpen. He's somebody who is contact-oriented. Like, Velasquez gets more swings and misses. So I think... I trust Keuchel more to start a game and be okay for three innings than Velasquez to come in and feel like you're um, changing the pace and approach for the other team and maybe um, maybe putting you know more stress on the other team's lineup that way. I don't think it's a punishment. I think it's more optimizing what the White Sox have on hand to compromise another team's lineup. And I think Velasquez, given everything he's been through and how happy he is to have a major league job for a contender, I think would be happy with you just rolling with the changes. Well, the next start for Dallas Keuchel could possibly be Friday night against the New York Yankees if he is going to go every fifth day. So we'll see on how the White Sox want to manage this, especially with Johnny Cueto, because they have to make a decision on Cueto by Sunday, May 15th. All right. So the other big topic over the weekend for this series, the White Sox were on national TV twice this weekend. Friday night on Apple TV, Sunday morning on Peacock. But for those that are in the Chicago area, you were able to watch on NBC5. Jim, I posted a poll on Twitter asking White Sox fans which broadcast they preferred more. 88% picked the Peacock broadcast, the NBC broadcast. Now, I think largely because it was Jason Benetti and Steve Stone for that call. But what were your thoughts on the national TV broadcast over the weekend and which version did you enjoy more? Well, yeah, I would be voting for the NBC slash Peacock one, partially because I could pause the game. Like, I'm not sure about you or what you watched the Friday broadcast on, but I you know, have an LG TV and so I was using the LG mm-hmm. interface for Apple TV and I could not pause the game, could not rewind. So as I'm, you know, putting a kid to sleep and, uh, you know, while bathing him beforehand, uh, putting him down for the night and then, you know, just 
taking care of stuff around the house, you know, taking the dog out and such. Like normally those are occasions where I'd pause the game and then speed, you know, fast forward through uh, between pitches and eventually catch up. But in this case, I cannot pause. So, I mean, like that's basically like I can't pause it and because I don't have Apple products. I can't watch it on my phone. So this is very much like having a bunny ears TV. <laughs> like it's just, I'm at the mercy of the schedule and uh, time. And, and it feels like, you know, as, as a viewing experience, it was like going back 30 years. Uh, just that you don't have to, to, you know, slap the side of the TV, get better reception to, sh- to show my age. Remember, I am 65 years old. Uh, <laughs> so that, you know, that was a, uh, you know, even before you get to the broadcaster quality, like that was just, you know, not fun to watch and not enjoyable. You know, I, I will say that like in, in terms of visual quality, I thought the visuals on Apple TV were really striking. Like the close-ups, uh, when batters were stepping into the box, when players were in the dugout, you could really see like it looked almost video game-ish, uh, which I thought was cool and really striking. And there was a shot of Luis Robert in the dugout and like you could see, like you could read his tattoos. And that was cool. Like that was just a way to like just, it, it caught my attention more. Just the way players were featured and framed. So I thought that was cool. But yeah, just when it came to the quality of the broadcasts, like even trying to isolate for being familiar and with Jason Benetti and Steve Stone and feeling like it was a White Sox-oriented broadcast, even though they tried. And I thought they did a decent job of sounding neutral. Like Benetti called J.D. Martinez's home run or near home run against Jose Ruiz neutrally. Uh, you know, I thought he got ex- It was weird hearing him get excited for another team's close home run. Like it, it caught my ear like, Oh, this is whose side are you on? Oh yeah. You're on nobody's side. <laughs> you're on the side of excitement. And I, and I heard Steve stone catching himself to make sure that he said white Sox more often and, uh, and not say our, or we like, yeah. uh, eventually he got used to that and was, was adjusted. So, and Kevin Euclid, like I thought he was genial, but not really a Red Sox presence. Um, you know, he kind of fed off of what, you know, rolled with what Benetti and Stone were saying, but really wasn't driving the conversation towards the Red Sox himself to balance it out. Um, but on the other hand, the, uh, just the broadcast was really rough for Apple TV. And part of me wonders, like, I know they were down. I, th- I think it's usually Melanie Newman. Is Chris Young always with them? I believe so. Okay. And, and Hannah Kaiser, I know is a third uh, yes. third person in the booth and she was out because of COVID and given that's a new booth thrown together quickly I just don't know if like the three of them beforehand if they had more turns talking uh, to where just everybody had to talk less and, and, and the airtime was filled but it just felt like they were desperate to fill airtime like they would just repeat things you know repeat the same points like Boston being a sports town Boston having like making Boston sound unique for having four sports uh, you know, like, and, and, and repeating it, marveling it over like, you know, three different times over the course of an inning, just why, why are you talking? Like, let a, let a pitch or two go, uh, you know, catch your breath, collect your thoughts. So you're not behind the action or just, um, you know, filling in words and, and speaking incorrectly, like even adjusting for the, uh, you know, maybe the, the Red Sox, White Sox land and the newness of the booth, like just, you know, having the Boston visuals just made them keep talking about like Boston sports, Boston sports. And I know White Sox fans are getting sick of it, but just, I think it was just more of a threat of feeling like they had to talk. And because they were in Boston, because the crowd was, you know, was all Boston. Uh, they just kept talking about Boston because they're feeding off the visuals, trying to keep talking and they just needed to talk less. I, I think. Well, it is because the strategy with Apple TV for the Friday night pod broadcast is to be like a podcast. Our podcast does not work, Jim. If you and I take long pauses, let's try it. <laughs> right. We have to talk. And that is the strategy for Apple TV. Now they're not a podcast, yes. right? They're calling a baseball game. So that's where the idea of being a, a trying to go the podcast model for play by play for a national broadcast it does not work. I like Melanie Newman. I think she calls a good game and I hope that she has success. Chris Young, I'm worried about him. If he's got to call a game that he didn't play f- for that team, let's say a Minnesota twins against Kansas city Royals game. Uh, is he not going to be insightful? Um, what about I, bogey and Raffi? Well, and I, Devi? I, you, <laughs> Uculus use bogey during the peacock yeah. 
broadcast. But he just talked a lot less. Yeah, he talked a lot <laughs> less. But I, I am worried about Chris Dunn. He's got to be a lot more prepared because if he calls a game that he didn't play for these teams, uh, he could be useless. Uh, he just doesn't bring a lot of insight. The only insight that he had was based on his experience with the Boston Red Sox, which is very recent. He last played in 2017. And I don't know with Hannah if she's like comic relief or she's bringing in quirky stats or additional analysis, maybe more sabermetric analysis. She does a good job analyzing the game. I don't know if that would have made the broadcast better. Shooting anything in 4K is going to look stunning. So bravo, Apple, that you are using that budget to not only shoot but stream in 4K. But I also get 4K broadcasts on Fox. And we're going to get 4K broadcasts soon on ESPN. And we're going to get 4K broadcasts on NBC Sports Chicago. That is not going to be an advantage for you. So for your technology that only works on one type of device and platform optimally. And if you are going to continue to try and have a podcast model calling games, your broadcast is really going to fall behind and no fan base in major league baseball is going to want to see their teams play on Apple TV. They're just Mm -hmm. not. Now, the Peacock broadcast, I was catching it on my phone and at watching the TV at the bar when I was having brunch on Sunday, and that just felt very much like an NBC Sports Chicago type of broadcast, which can work. Yeah, the visuals, too. The score bugs, the uh, the strike zones, the stat cast stuff was all used from the NBC Sports model or NBC Sports Chicago models. Right. And for this first broadcast, I think it goes so well because you have Jason Benetti and Steve Stone calling the game together. They got great chemistry. I like the game that Kevin Euclid calls watching Boston Red Sox broadcast early in the season on MLB.tv. I think he's really good at being in and uh, analyzing the game. The next broadcast for Peacock is going to be San Diego against Atlanta, and they're going to take the two color commentators from both teams to continue this model. That's what makes this interesting moving forward for someone that's not well-versed media like Steve Stone. He is a veteran. I mean, he's been doing this longer than some people who are listening to this podcast have been alive. So he has been used to this type of format. What happens when you pair two color guys that might be more new to a national audience? Can they pull this off? We'll see. I am intrigued with the idea. I do think that it is interesting and it's an attempt to bring balance. Or you could be bringing two Homer guys and they could be arguing and talking over Jason Benetti soon uh, in a future Peacock broadcast. I don't know how that's going to work I mean, like that could be cool if you. It could be cool if you had like two, you know, recent ex players who knew the other organizations, like going back and forth with Benetti moderating. That would be you like chaos. That would be like unique, I think, in terms of providing balance and insight for each team. Like, but I thought, you know, one thing I thought about Sunday while listening to Steve Stone accurately describe Adam Angle when I remember Alex Rodriguez botching it during a Sunday night game last year, like having no idea, no idea what Angle. No idea who he was or what he did. Like it must be nice for you know to, for a Red Sox fan who's interested in the rest of the league, getting like accurate insight on a White Sox role player. And so I think it'd be cool to yeah. You know, that's one thing I wish that the Peacock you know NBC broadcast had was more of a, or maybe Kevin Euclid just you know maybe asserting himself more. I think he, the the chips were stacked against him with Stone and Benetti's familiarity, but just having more of a counterweight. So I learned more about the Red Sox you know, the, the way they were working without Benetti having to lead them in. So if you had like two equal analysts who felt like, you know, were getting equal time or equal comfort in front of the mic and we're kind of going back and forth. Like, mm. I think that could, you know, some insights could be gleaned. You know, so that's why I think it could be interesting, but it would require like Benetti to be more of a moderator. But I think that would at least be unique, you know, and as we're bouncing between all these streaming services and getting all, you know, just, uh, which I hate, you know, I hate having, you know, three different games on three different services you have to pay for. Even if you know, the first game was on NBC, the rest of them are going to be in Peacock. Like that's just a terrible business model and hard to follow. But at least if you're going to have all these ones experimenting, I think having, you know, variety of analysts and uh, weights and counterweights in the broadcast booth, I, I think would be a useful t- uh, 
way to make this experiment kind of apply for other broadcasts going forward. The one concern about Peacock, though, is the next broadcast between San Diego and Atlanta is at 1130 in the morning East Coast time. That's 830 Pacific time. I don't know if this time slot works. I think it's okay. It's like, uh, yeah, NFL games. Like my, my brother's been stationed on the West Coast in Hawaii and he would wake up, you know, at 7 a.m. in Hawaii to go watch the Bears at a bar. Yeah. I, <laughs> so, yeah. Sometimes it works, but I for baseball, I don't know if it's going to work. The NFL, you can plan your Sunday like that. It, it's tough for a 162-game schedule for baseball to do that. So that's that's my critique for Peacock is when you are actually scheduling these games. But... Yeah, for Apple TV, I'm okay if the White Sox are not on Apple TV for the rest of the season. And quite frankly, I don't know if I'm going to watch any other games that are on Apple TV. I got MLB.TV. I will watch another game. Uh, I just, yeah, the whole Apple TV idea, I think it's just a cash grab by Major League Baseball, which, fine, get that money. But keep it a one game a week. Don't put three games on there. We are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but the next opponent for the White Sox is against the Cleveland Guardians. Can they avenge their sweep a couple weeks ago in Cleveland? Well, the White Sox are getting some help as Yoan Makata and Joe Kelly make their 2022 season debuts. We discuss that next on the Sox Machine Podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Chicago White Sox, again, will be coming home for the next seven games as they play every single day this upcoming week. And their first series on this homestand is against the Cleveland Guardians. The Guardians are at 500. They are 14 and 14. They have won their last two games. That is meant, as Jim mentioned earlier, they have won seven of their last 10 games. Offensively, Cleveland does not have the problem that the White Sox have. They are averaging 4.71 runs per game. On the run prevention side, they're allowing more than the White Sox are. They're allowing 4.36 runs per game. Jose Ramirez is on a tear to start the season. And if he continues this pace, he's going to be a very strong candidate to win the American League MVP. He's currently hitting 311 with a 410 on base percentage, and he's slugging 631. He's got seven home runs and 30 RBIs, and he has 17 walks to just 10 strikeouts. Jose Ramirez is on pace to hit 41 homers in 2022 with 174 RBIs. He may not get to the 174, but he might get to 41 home runs because we know just how talented Jose Ramirez is. The pitching probables for this series starting on Monday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. Yes, note that. We have gone from the 6 o'clock weekday starts now to 7 o'clock. It'll be Zach Plesak on the mound for Cleveland against Michael Kopech. Tuesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it's Cal Quantrill against Lucas Giolito. Wednesday is getaway day for Cleveland. This is a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. It's Aaron Savali against to be announced 
it will either be Vince Velasquez or if Tony La Russa and the White Sox front office think that Johnny Cueto's ready, we may see Cueto make that start on Wednesday. Time will tell. Jim Cleveland swept the White Sox last time they faced each other. The White Sox are hot right now. Do you think they could return the favor? I'm inclined to say no just because three right-hand starters who have given the White Sox fits in the past, I'd be very surprised. Um, but they should fare better. I think, you know, weather warming up is one thing. Um, you know, the Jose Abreu starting to lift the ball again, starting to come through with some big hits after really looking like the guy who presses and hits everything on the ground with runners in scoring positions. The RBIs are coming back up and because he's lifting the ball more. Uh, I think, you know, that I talked about this Lawrence Holmes, like the the way I look at it is like we've talked about it before with Tim Anderson, Luis Robert, when they're hitting well and running well, the offense starts to unlock a little bit. Jose Abreu's next one, just coming through with the hits, like capitalizing on their momentum. And now it's about that next wave after that. Is it going to be Yasmani Grandal? Is it going to be AJ Pollock's timing improving? Is it going to be uh, Yohan Makata coming back? So I, I think, you know, one of these uh, players needs to, come through with like a good week just to take some of the stress off, basically three hitters. And, uh, and then you're, you're kind of scratching for extra bases, you know, the other six spots. Cause like Grandal is starting to turn around a little bit, starting to get on base more, but it's a base at a time. So he's not quite, uh, hey, he's you know, he steal a base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did steal the base. Uh, and I loved his reaction to that. But when it comes to just, uh, you know, getting on base and then, you know, being, uh, you know, able to score on somebody else's hits. Like he needs to, you know, get to second more himself in order to uh, take the stress off the hitters behind him. Otherwise he's setting up a double play basically. So I, I think this offense can get back on track, but I think it's going to take at least one more of those non-hitting White Sox to show up to start breaking through that four run threshold. We got a couple of questions as we're going to talk about Yohan Makata and Joe Kelly making their 2000. 22 season debuts from a couple of our Patreon supporters, Alec and Tim. Alec wrote to us, Jim, Joe Kelly and Yohan Makata on their way back, and it's finally starting to get warm. Is this where we see a big surge from the White Sox? And Tim wrote to us, even with the wins, the offense is not coming together all that well. Is Yohan Makata the antidote, or is there some systematic issue that still needs to be fixed? I think he's an antidote. Uh, I think Andrew Vaughn coming back will be another one, uh, given the yes. way he was hitting. So it's not all on Mankata. Uh, there, there is more help arriving. What I am, uh, I guess, specific to Mankata, I'm intrigued to see how well he does because he had a full and proper rehab stint. Like he could have been up theoretically a few days earlier uh, with the White Sox, given how he played in Charlotte. But the White Sox, you know, managing his oblique strain, like he got... Uh, the the full complement of at bats and and Charlotte had some good games had some bad games had some really great games uh, and and had some really impressive contact so I'm hoping he comes back for multiple reasons and and starts driving the ball with regularity to the outfield but you know as we talked about with AJ Pollock and not having a rehab stint and looking like his timing is off I'm hoping that you know Moncada comes back and Shows a bit better time. I think he'll still be uneven. I imagine he's going to have some games where he's not a factor and some games where he has a couple uh, loud extra base hits in the game. Like, I think it's going to be a bit bumpy for him, but I think there will be some uh, upswings with the downswings. Um, at least that's my personal feeling on it. But if he doesn't quite hit right away, I'm not necessarily going to point fingers and say like, oh, great, you know, another you know, uneven Moncada season we thought he would help. I think it is more incumbent on, on you know, Yasmani Grandal or, uh, you know, A.J. Pollock, as we've mentioned, Gavin Sheets, you know, in, in matchups that make sense, especially if three righties coming up, like it'd be nice to see him have some better at-bats. Um, but Moncada, I think, you know, give him a week. I, I think you'll, you will see the difference over having Jake Berger in their third base. You're good with Tony LaRusso saying that Yohan Makata's going to bat second, so the order is going to be Tim Anderson leading off, Yohan Makata batting second, Jose Abreu batting third, and Luis Robert batting fourth. I don't mind it. Yeah, I, I could understand if he wanted to bat Makata seventh, slowly introducing him, but given that we are seeing those tough Cleveland righties, I think it makes sense to give uh, Makata as many at-bats as possible to hopefully, you know, if there is rust involved or getting timing back against the, the best of the best, that... If you do it in game one, hopefully by game two or three, though that the one extra at bat he's getting will start to pay off, you know, in the in the slightly bigger picture. 
Andrew Vaughn, the hope is that he'll be able to rejoin the White Sox for the Yankees series. So he's not available for the Cleveland series. But we could see a future lineup for the White Sox later this week. Anderson, Mancata, Abreu, Robert, Grandal, Vaughn. And maybe you have Pollock batting seventh and then whoever, maybe maybe Lurie Garcia is still at second base. Lurie's been hitting well in the month of May, but that's the type of lineup that you could see out of Grandal, as you mentioned, Jim, can consistently get on base. And if Vaughn continues to hit at the rate that he was hitting before he got hit in the hand, maybe we could see that offensive surge that Alec asked us about. Uh, but I think with the way that Anderson's been hitting, Anderson's been on a tear. Makata, for me, just consistently get on base. I mean, even if he goes like 0 for 3, but he draws a walk after Anderson like hits a single, for example, and Abreu's coming up and Robert's coming up with multiple runners in, on base, I, I think puts the White Sox in the best position to score. And with the way this offense is sputtering, that's what I'm paying attention to is how many run scoring opportunities does this team have because we're just not seeing a lot of home runs from this White Sox offense. And if Mikata can do that, at least for this first series, that that's a pretty low expectation. But if he could draw some mm-hmm. walks or even pick up a, a hit or there, uh, I think it's just going to help with this lineup right now because it just feels like Anderson gets on base and with two outs, uh, Abreu and Robert have to make magic happen. Yeah, and it also, I think, puts a lot of stress on Joe McEwing having to make all these calls like, is this going to be my best chance to get a runner home? So I think you yeah. know, having Moncada get on base, help the line move, a little bit of extra speed uh, you know, before you get to the Brayu grandall part of the lineup might be able to just generate some more dynamic offense to where you are going th- first to third more often, second to home more often, uh, and not requiring like a bang-bang play at the plate. Joe Kelly. How often do you think Kelly should be used? And do you think we could maybe see a usage pattern where Kelly pitches one day and the next day he automatically has off just to be mindful of his recent injury? I think there will be a slow introduction, you know, just maybe a couple games under his belt uh, with a day of rest afterwards to make sure that he's bouncing back properly, given that it's, you know, a nerve uh, issue in his bicep. So, you know, it could be something where just it needed to heal fully and, and it won't recur, but, you know, sometimes it can just be a matter of irritation. So I imagine they're going to slow play it, uh, wait a bit until he has to pitch on consecutive days, especially with Aaron Bummer being out and being so thin from the left side or thin on players who are uh, capable of handling left-handed batters with confidence to where I, I don't think they want to lose him. So it might require a little bit more Bennett Souza than you want to see in important situations against lefties, but um, I wouldn't mind if they just stuck to a pretty strict usage pattern for the first series or first week with Kelly to where he doesn't pitch on consecutive days. Yeah, I'm also wondering, Liam Hendricks had Sunday off. If the White Sox, again, they don't score more than 10 runs, and but they're in a position to win each of these three games because they're division games. I'm wondering if it's still possible we could see Hendricks in each of these games. Yeah, it's with Hendricks, you know, he did have the back issue, but it seems like that's past him and he's been throwing the ball really well, you know, hitting 99 with life. Uh, The fastball looks like the fastball, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, unlike, you know, when he had that weird little back twitch and was hitting 96, 97, getting beat around a little bit. So I like the way he looks and I don't mind him being used uh, more strenuously. I, I think of any pitcher in the bullpen, he's able to handle it. But uh, the Aaron Bummer thing is going to be uh, worth watching just because when I, you know, Lawrence Holmes asked me on his show, he said, like, what's wrong with Aaron Bummer? And, you know, I gave a few reasons, like his release points off. He might be fighting his mechanics because his velocity's down. I said, well, and he also could be hurt. You know, just if your velocity's down, like that's usually <laughs> the first thing you point to. They say, like, is he hurt? But, you know, I said, like, he's been pitching regularly enough to think you know, if it was a physical issue um, that they would have eventually would have asked about it and, and, and bummer might've had to fess up. But if this has been something that has been plaguing him for a while and it's been the reason why he's been so off, then yeah, I just want to make sure that, you know, the bullpen as it's constructed feels confident in reporting injuries or, you know, maybe not necessarily full blown injuries, but just something that they needs uh, monitoring. You, ne- you maybe needs a little bit of babying to get through a series. You know, I'm hoping that everybody is 
you know, just because Crochet is out and Bummer is out and they feel like they, you know, everybody needs to contribute. I'm hoping that's not the case, that Bummer got hurt because he was trying to trying to grit his teeth and just uh, shove through it uh, because that, I think, does more harm than good. Well, when we do see Joe Kelly, hopefully, uh, if he does face Jose Ramirez, that he can get him out because I think we're going to see that matchup at some point in this series, especially in a high leverage situation, Kelly against Jose Ramirez, and hopefully Kelly wins those battles. Uh, Cause again, Jose Ramirez is on a tear, but you guys had questions for us and we're going to answer them next in PO socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the white socks. Here is PO socks. Thanks Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you our Patreon supporters get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where our Patreon supporters that you can sign up at patreon.com slash socks machine. They submitted questions to us all week long for us to discuss on the Monday episode of the Socks Machine podcast. And Jim, the first question that we have in the mailbag comes from Steve Bennett. And Steve asked us, rank the hierarchy in the bullpen as you think Tony Russa sees it and how you each see it. Also plug Joe Kelly into your responses. I think Hendricks, you know, at the top of the leverage ladder, uh, Graveman one notch below or one rung below for talking ladders. And then below that, I think is right now you have uh, Matt Foster, I think is suddenly shot up there. Jose Ruiz, I think is hanging up there. And then I think that's where Kelly will be as well. Like I think in those kind of situations, I don't think they'll throw him immediately into a safe situation or, you know, anything close to that. I think they'll want to see how he looks, but I think that's the next tier uh, where they can all get shots, all take turns. And then, you know, should Graveman be unavailable or should Graveman be saved for a Liam Hendricks situation? If LaRusso wants to give him a break, then I think you could see one of them creep up to an eighth inning situation. Uh, the one guy I don't know about, uh, and I should say that I generally agree with that. Like if that's the way it is, then that's fine. The one guy I'm not quite sure where he fits is Reynaldo Lopez. Like I thought he was going to be the long guy, the multi-inning guy uh, for most of this season, but he's only had one appearance of two innings. Um, part of that I think has been, you know, the starting pitching has been decent across the board. Not a whole lot of uh, early game emergencies. Um, you know, that might be a comment more on the starting pitching or a comment more on just offenses around baseball, but there, there hasn't been the need for a guy who covers the fourth, fifth and sixth innings, but Lopez is just, you know, he's not getting uh, a ton of strikeouts. He's not getting, you know, he's not walking many either. He's just kind of, you know, letting the ball be in play and see what happens. So it's not really a high leverage profile, but he's also not getting used in long relief. So he's just kind of somebody I think who is, you know, maybe that sixth inning guy, like if the start only goes five, he's the sixth inning guy, or he's the uh, fifth inning guy. If the starter goes four, but he seems to be the lowest one on there. And I guess with, you know, as we talked about Dallas Keuchel, like even if, uh, you know, Velasquez somehow stays in the rotation and Keuchel is the, you know, you hope for five innings from him. Maybe Lopez is the guy who can replace uh, Keuchel after four or after five for a sign of trouble and help get a game to the seventh inning or through the seventh inning if the lineup matches up well. Because right now, I think in this kind of vague one-inning role, it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of use for him. Also, I guess I did mention Bennett Sues and Ryan Burr, if they're still around, depending on who goes. Well, I guess Kelly's replacing Bummer. But as long as Burr's around, I think they're, you know, it's Souza, Burr, and uh, Lopez one notch below. No, nobody has really done anything to... Uh, you know, lose their jobs, but also nobody has really done anything to demand clutch uh, situations the way that Ruiz and Foster have delivered in surprising assignments early on. So Steve, it's it's funny that you asked us this question because something caught my attention, Jim, during the Saturday broadcast that Steve Stone mentioned the White Sox winning bullpen rotation and their losing bullpen rotation. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's a little bit of Ned Yost managing, <laughs> but mm-hmm. maybe Larusa does have this set up. And the way I'm like breaking it down is you have four relievers that you have a lot of confidence can hold the lead. That's your winning bullpen. If the game is tied or you're behind, you have the quote unquote losing bullpen, the guys that you're going to trot out there. If they can hold the lead, great. But if things got to get out of hand, all right, burn them 
don't burn the high quality guys in a losing effort. It'll be up to the offense to, to make magic happen. For the winning bullpen, assuming that the starting pitcher can go at least five innings, I've got Matt Foster, I got Joe Kelly, I got Kendall Graveman, and Liam Hendricks. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a debate about Matt Foster or throwing Joe Kelly in there, but I think Larusa just has a lot of confidence in Joe Kelly, and Kelly's going to be inserted into the winning bullpen, quote-unquote. The losing bullpen, Ronaldo Lopez, Jose Ruiz, Bennett Souza and Ryan Burr. That that's kind of how those guys are gonna come out. If the White Sox are down six to two and you're entering the fifth inning, I think those are the four guys we're gonna see coming out of the bullpen. I kind of agree with that dichotomy. I think the one thing I would say is like guys like Foster, maybe Ruiz are neither winning nor losing. I think they're more of a uh, I guess they they keep the they guess they keep both options available. Like say the starter only goes you know four and two thirds innings and Foster has to jump in, or Ruiz or maybe even Lopez. Like that's a game where like if the game if 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 say Foster delivers with one and two thirds scoreless innings and gets the game to Graveman, well previously Bummer maybe Kelly, and uh, and, and Hendricks, great. If Foster founders a little bit and you know all of a sudden gives up two runs they're losing by two and Ruiz has to come in like that's also fine like that's an appropriate usage of those players they can be you know like uh they're gonna stumble on occasion and you can't use Liam Hendricks every game because as we're seeing like sometimes you can use Liam Hendricks every game if every game is gonna be close and the White Sox have the lead in these ladings like theoretically it can be used every game for at least a week at a time. So uh, I, I think there are a couple of guys who bridge the gap and allow almost like a choose your own adventure novel to where like, you don't exactly know what's going to happen when these guys come in because they're qualified to pitch in either narrow leads or narrow deficits. So I don't think it's that clean cut, but it's close. And I think it's partially a credit to White Sox relievers that like guys like Foster, he was part of the losing bullpen until he wasn't because he just threw so well mm-hmm. that he got a chance and now is part of a winning mix everybody's throwing well enough to where the losing bullpen doesn't actually seem that bad. Right. And again, one day you're winning. And let's say if Foster goes back to back days and he's not available, then I think you're bringing in someone like Jose Ruiz to take his role for that game. If Ruiz didn't pitch the previous two days. Yeah. I think based on usage that Ronaldo Lopez has been the guy that if Kopech can only go four innings because of pitch count, here comes Lopez. But as you also pointed out, Jim, we've seen Lopez used against Wilson Contreras, and then he's done. Like He gets one guy. He doesn't get multiple mm-hmm. innings like we thought that he would be used this season. He's being used like a regular reliever right now. And uh, Bennett Sosa's uh, picking up saves. <laughs> save. He's picking up save. <laughs> he's got a save for this season. Good for Bennett Sousa. And, uh, I mean, is Tanner Banks alive? We haven't seen Tanner Banks in a while. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, as we talked about, there's always one member of the bullpen I forget, no matter what, like eight, nine, eight, nine relievers, like I can only remember seven. Yeah, and we forgot about Tanner Banks, and he's been great for the White Sox. Yeah, but I guess he's the long reliever yeah. that, you know, I guess so he, you know, his presence frees up Lopez to be, you know, one inning used more frequently. But perhaps, you know, with Bummer out, yeah, with, with Bummer out, maybe we see an elevation of Tanner Banks to, Maybe not quite the winning bullpen, but you know, maybe if Kelly can only go, uh, you know, one game at a time and then needs a breather, you know, somebody's going to step up to that lefty role. And Bennett Souza, I don't think he's quite proven himself yet to where you know might be a bit of a toss-up. And maybe you know Banks gets the opportunity to throw some shorter outings, and if he succeeds with Bummer being out, you know, maybe it does free up uh, Lopez for multiple innings. Or maybe if we, you know, if Velasquez gets shuttled down to more of a piggybacker to where he gets more of those Banks-like outings and, uh, you know, Banks becomes more of a short guy. Yeah. I just was looking at my list and I completely forgot about Tanner Banks. But, yeah, on Monday, you got Kopech going. <laughs> he gave up runs, so he's dead to us. <laughs> yeah, you got Kopech going on Monday. So if Kopech only goes five innings, I would expect the winning bullpen of Matt Foster, Joe Kelly, Kendall Graveman, Liam Hendricks to get to get that victory. But as we've seen with Lucas Giolito and Dylan Cease going deeper into games, maybe LaRusse could play more of a of a matchup situation, but then I still I'm still expecting Graveman and Hendricks to be used a lot, especially in this week. Because I think 
Will Rusa and the White Sox understand that being three and nine against the American League Central is unacceptable, and they need to start winning these series, especially at home against their division rivals. So I do expect, even though Hendricks has been used a lot in the last week, if the White Sox are in a safe situation for these games against Cleveland, I would not be shocked, Jim, if we see Liam Hendricks try to save each of these games. But Steve, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Michael. Michael wrote to us, what the heck is up with Gavin Sheets? Was there anything truly behind his success in 2021. Yeah, I, I think, you know, his success in 2021 was legit, or at least his second uh, stint. Was, he made necessary adjustments based on how he was being pitched in his first stint, the diminishing returns there. This time around, it seems like there have been adjustments to him. Like, I would say the last time around, he got used to being bombarded with slower stuff, and so he got wiser to that and was a bit more aware of just chasing low pitches or beating them into the ground and, and just making weak contact. So now it seems like they're on the attack with fastballs more, and especially especially like fastballs on the outer half away or like up and in. Like, the, you know, it, based on his swing percentage, he's letting a lot of strikes go. He's behind 0-1, I think, more than any other White Sox hitter. Just there, he's swinging at fewer... Uh, I should say Yasmani Grandal is the only hitter on the White Sox who swings less at strikes, at pitches in the zones. So I think he's trying to, you know, be a zone hitter, but I don't know if he's proven enough to get walks that way. Like, I think that he's just going to be attacked more. So I think he's just behind in the count. And so he's trying to defend every pitch. And so just a lot of weak contact. And he's having to settle for like beating the shift on singles, which is sometimes useful. Uh, but he's, you know, that was how he looked in his first stint where he's just trying to contribute because uh, he wasn't in a position to do damage. Like he wasn't finding pitches to his liking. Uh, that, that just how it looks right now. Just there aren't many comfortable counts. And so he's having to cover everything and he might stand to benefit by being more aggressive and being ready for more fastballs and being ready to cover them more in other parts of the plate and not just look down and in early in the count just because that pitch is not available to him right now. And once he needs to start worrying about other pitches, it seems like he loses the ability to uh, cover fastballs with confidence. From a scouting perspective, Jim, he's really struggling with velocity on the inside. As you were mentioning, that four-seamer, it just doesn't seem like he is getting his hands through the zone in time. And that's why we see a lot of weak pop-ups or we're seeing a lot of ground balls on four-seam fastballs from Gavin Sheets. Like You mentioned the singles. He's hitting 259, according to Baseball Savant, against a four-seamer. He's seven for 27 against a four seamer in a plate appearance ending with a four seam fastball. He's seven for 27. So a 259 batting average is not terrible, but he's slugging 333 against four seamers. And that's unacceptable. Like he is the guy, and I know it's a lot of pressure. I mean, he still hasn't played 100 games in his career, I believe. He's still very new to the majors. But unfortunately, the White Sox not getting another proven left-handed hitter, the weight falls on Gavin Sheets' shoulders if they're going to correct their issues against right-handed pitching. Sheets needs to hit for power. He's got to be the guy like he was in 2021. In 2021, Sheets hit 266 against four-seamers, but he slugged 547. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a gigantic drop-off in power from Gavin Sheets against the four-seamer. And sliders, especially from righties, they're just busting him inside with the slider right now. He's two for 13 against the slider. He's hitting 154. That's where he has his one home run on the season. So I think I'm with you. I'm going to be paying attention more on how he is addressing the fastball, especially inside heat. And and just from my scouting perspective, watching him, it just feels like Jim, he is not getting his hands through in the zone in time to be able to get the barrel on those inside pitches that it's just hitting in the weak part of the bat and he just can't do anything with them. Yeah. It looked like just the adjustment to the adjustment. So fastballs yeah. early on in his first stint, he was hammering them. So they went off speed. Then he came back, was ready for the off speed. Now they're back to the fastball. And how does he deal with that? I just think, you know, perhaps if they're going to be feeding him fastballs early in the count to get ahead uh, because he's taking them or he's you know, zone hitting. And so ignoring the outer half and just looking for one, you know, low pitch to square up, like he just might have to expand his 
maybe not expand his comfort a little bit, but just, you know, to where he's looking, but maybe more along the lines of just be ready for velocity wherever it is and his hand will get there. Yeah. Good point. But Michael, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us this week for PO Socks. Again, if you have a question or topic that you would like us to address, the way to do so is by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash socks machine where our patreon supporters they get more they get exclusive content for example every monday edition of the socks machine podcast we have bonus po socks questions so we answer all the questions that come to us and they get that exclusive podcast content for being a patreon supporter they also get ad-free versions of the podcast at the website and when we have new socks machine swag they get the first opportunity to get that swag i've got season tickets when i can't go to a game it's available to our Patreon supporters. So if you enjoy our work and you want more from us, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up. We have monthly plans starting at $2 and we have annual subscriptions that save you more. But that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you just discovered the Socks Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Socks Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Socks Machine underscore Josh. We'll have Socks Machine live this upcoming Wednesday night after the White Sox conclude their series against the Cleveland Guardians. And the Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com. You're home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.